Okay, I'm here in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the Branch headquarters and I'm with Platt Boyd, the CEO of Branch Technologies. They're revolutionizing the possibilities of freeform design, mostly with facades, soon some residential projects with structural elements. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. I'm glad for you to be here. I've seen some of your podcasts in other locations. So. Yeah, cool. It's always fun to do them in person better than a Zoom call. Like, there's so much of a Zoom fatigue these days. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So we did a tour of your facility. How many machines do you have out there? Uh, so right now, um, we've got kind of a fleet uh, of 3D printing machines and then other machines. Um, uh, we have 14 printing robots uh, right now. We've got 2 million bots. We've got uh, R&D bot and then another bot in the works uh, for foaming automation. So your system, from my understanding, you print a lattice out of uh, plastic or any material you can extrude, uh, usually heat-based, and then depending on the utility, maybe for art systems, you might leave the lattice or you could fill it with foam? Correct, yeah. So what we do is it's uh, freeform 3D printing uh, where we 3D print a structural lattice like this uh, that um, creates this uh, what we call cellular network um, and so this is a structural uh, portion of that and so it's uh, a two pound piece about the size of a concrete block uh, can support 3,000 pounds in compression uh, and that's the carbon fiber reinforced uh, ABS um, and then we infill uh, with a fire-rated two-pound uh, polyurethane foam, uh, as you see right there. Um, and so that creates a composite, uh, and that composite effect more than doubles the strength. Um, it's a, about an R7 per inch insulation, so a very high insulation value, um, but it more than doubles the structure. Uh, and so once you fill that uh, block, uh, so instead of 3,000 pounds in compression, uh, it now supports 6,000 to 10,000 pounds in compression. And that's depending on the density of those cells. So density can create strength, uh, and so we can kind of optimize uh, to create strength where needed. Um, and then we finish uh, with either uh, glass fiber reinforced concrete, which is what you see there, uh, or lightweight stucco uh, that's a very thin finish uh, to make rain screens, uh, for commercial construction uh, or mega panels mm -hmm. um, in partnership with uh, uh, panelizers throughout the U.S. The mega panels are like what's on the bank? No, those are rain screen panels mm -hmm. uh, and so those are up to 4 feet by 10 feet um, and the mega panels are up to 12 feet by 45 feet. Wow. Uh, so they're really just limited by logistics uh, and then we're the insulation and articulation uh, on the outside of light gauge metal framing uh, walls. And so it's, in that case, uh, the value proposition is how do you clad uh, a building five times faster than with on-site methods. Mm -hmm. um, so it's prefabrication to like uh, uh, a really great point. On top of that, it would be so challenging. I mean, usually when you do a facade, specifically branch, every piece is unique, right? Correct, yeah. So. Uh, almost, not all projects that we do, but almost uh, all projects that we do, uh, every panel is unique. Uh, and that's the power of 3D printing. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, you could do flat panels or articulated panels and they're going to be about the same price. Uh, it just has to do with, like, that um, inherent customization that 3D printing brings to the table uh, that's a really powerful tool in construction. Yeah, I watched your webinar, to paraphrase something you said, you're really unlocking the power of the people that are working with the software. You have some incredibly talented software uh, 3D modeling people here from great companies and uh, I'm sure they're really excited about being able to finally print some of the stuff that they've been working on. Yeah, um, uh, a concept called parametric design has been around for 25, uh, almost 30 years. Uh, that ability uh, has been in architects' hands for a long time. Um, but the, the issue is that you could use that to create something really cool, but it just gets sequestered into a, uh, like a digital model mm. uh, because the tools to actually fabricate that thing uh, uh, don't really exist too much. So it's either um, something that 
you can create it digitally, but you can't get it made because there doesn't exist any technology to make it. Or um, it, it's something that is just, you can make it, but it's ridiculously expensive. Mm -hmm. So one of the purposes behind Branch is to democratize uh, design freedom mm -hmm. and to make what has been available in the market to design uh, and allow that into a broader set of projects uh, into normal architects. Um, and because I, I came from a very, very normal practice of architecture uh, and I couldn't touch uh, some of these like very, very expensive budgets that some projects have. And so to allow that type of design freedom into more normal construction budgets is really one of the purposes uh, behind Branch. Yeah, that's awesome. And so when you started the company, where did you get the concept from? <laughs> Uh, it started with Sketch, mm -hmm. um, working uh, on a, too long on a Saturday on a very not fun project. Were you still working in construction or architecture at the Architecture, time? yeah. Um, and read an article about 3D printing, mm -hmm. like, and as it was applied to construction and seeing some other methods out there that were using layered concrete uh, to 3D print with, and it was like, okay, well, that's really cool for certain use cases, but that's not how modern buildings are made. Modern buildings are almost always uh, composites, and there's multiple layers coming together into an assembly. Uh, and so the idea was just a sketch of, like, how do you use 3D printing as a scaffold uh, for normal construction materials? Uh, and so that was the initial idea. Um, and I was an architect mm -hmm. with, I've got four kids and so I had a partner uh, in a firm uh, and so I was just like, okay, I think this is a pretty cool idea, um, but taking it forward was like nights and weekends for nine months before like, okay, this is taking the leap and doing it full time. Yeah, uh, nine months before you jumped in full time? Yes. Um, and that was a major leap um, that uh, uh, it was very uncomfortable. Uh, but I'm very, very thankful um, for it. And just and now to see where it's come is, I don't know, it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah, we serendipitously ran into Tony at lunch today, the third yeah. number three guy. Who was the number two guy? Uh, Chris Weller. Uh, he was my next door neighbor. Um, in Montgomery, and he was in architecture school at UVA, uh, a brilliant um, architect, and so he had interned at my previous firm, uh, and I said, would you want to intern at this little startup company? Uh, and he said, yeah, so at the end of the summer I asked him, well, I don't know if you could take a break from architecture school to come on board, uh, being a part of a startup can be a good thing. Um, uh, and so he came on board and so he got married a couple years ago and they moved to DC so he's no longer here but he was integral uh, to the beginning stages of the company and just um, a brilliant autodidact uh, that could learn almost anything. Well, I'm going to move the laptop so the fan is not right next to the mic. Okay. So, at what point did he join you before you left the architecture firm? Um, I left in April. Um, I think he came on board in July. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then we did a couple things that summer, and then at the end of the summer he was about to go back to school, and I said, Here's, uh, would you be willing to take a gap year? Mm -hmm. And then the gap year turned into like four, I think. Wow. Um, so it. Uh, but he ended up graduating um, architecture school from UVA in, I think, a, f a four-year program in three years. Um, I mean, he just had done incredibly well. There, yeah. So. Cool. And so basically a year you were on your own. Uh, did you raise money? Did you get a printer in that time? No. Uh, so yes to the raising money. Uh, so we had to 
that was one of the first things is like okay uh, we knew on savings we could take it only a little ways mm -hmm. 401k could take us a little couple more months and that's basically like just financing your life after you left the architecture firm or were there expenses at the beginning of the startup oh there's lots of expenses at the beginning of a startup um, but that's how the initial thought was okay we can take it for a little while my wife and I mm -hmm. um, and uh, then but immediately I was pitching investors and we yeah. we got a, a round um, of investment in those early days uh, it was a small round but like angel round uh, under a million oh yeah under a hundred thousand three hundred thousand mm -hmm. um, and then took it forward for a while um, and then we came to Chattanooga um, for an event called Gig Tank in 2014. From where? From Montgomery, uh -huh. Alabama, uh, which is where I practiced architecture, where we had been for 17 years. So, like that was home. Yeah. Uh, but then investigated Chattanooga, uh, one of Angel investors said, have you heard of Gig Tank? I was like, what's Gig Tank? Um, and he said, it's, the, it's a 3D printing business incubator based in Chattanooga. So I came up here to that in um, July, and there was like a thousand people in the room, uh, and ten to twelve different startups pitching 3D printing ideas, um, and I was like, "Wow, this is the community. This is what is needed." Um, How so, many times have you done your pitch at that point? Oh, at that point, oh, not very many. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't. We didn't participate that year, uh, it, but it was the community of like. There's founders, 3D printing companies, uh, there was investors from all over, um, and then Oak Ridge National Labs mm -hmm. uh, was here. And so uh, they're part of the Department of Energy, and they were doing large-scale 3D printing. Um, so Plastic. In polymers and metals. Mm -hmm. um, and so, anyways, that's what began the journey here to Chattanooga. Um, we went through it the next year. Uh, after deciding this is a good place to grow a business um, and uh, move the business here and then moved into that incubator uh, that I believe that you went to mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's where we were for four years uh, before this facility. Yeah, it's a cool space. I just walked through but it looks like a lot of young startups just hustling. Yeah, there you go. Um, and then I pitched the CEO of KUKA at a conference. Uh, Before they sold to China. Uh, yes. Um, and uh, said, here's what we're doing in 3D printing. Would you be willing to loan a robot? Wow, for a period? Yeah. Um, and eventually they said yes, uh, and you can have it for three months. Um, so we got a little three-foot arm um, and had that in a room about this big uh, with a uh, too much heat in one little space, mm -hmm. um, and anyways, that was the first 3D printer uh, that was developed. Um, and then, as we moved up here, uh, within that the next year, we bought a larger robot. So by the time you got the printer, were you a three-man crew? We were, yeah. Uh, and then we're adding more people over time. Yeah, and now you're at 50. About, yeah. That's incredible. So and. 50,000 square feet here, um, and so it's a, uh, a great group of people, Yeah, like an amazing group. So for those four years, at the end of the four years, did you still only have the one printer? So by the time we moved out of the incubator, we had four mm -hmm. printers in 5,000 square feet with about 30 people. Wow. So we were just crawling all over each other, and uh, we moved in here, and our office is 5,000 square feet. Um, and we've got a lot more room for spreading out and having product. How was the initial vision different from what we saw here today? <laughs> um, so the initial vision was doing houses mm -hmm. um, and doing residential construction, custom residential construction. And um, uh, what after we did a project called Curve Appeal, mm -hmm. um, uh, we came to a point where we basically ran out of money. Um, one, and then two, realized 
like doing this, I, I thought we would have to demonstrate something at that scale before people would trust it. Yeah. Um, and we had done enough projects that were with matrix, that were pavilion scale mm -hmm. type things, and had done enough analysis structurally to understand the capabilities. Uh, and we printed that whole project. Um, and uh, we got to a, a point where uh, it was just, um, we had to start yeah. making money. Like, uh, immediately. Uh, and we also realized that doing that house, beautiful as it was, was incredibly complex uh, structurally. And structural engineering uh, was going to have to kind of basically catch up with where the capability of the printing process was. Um, and so it, was, uh, it wasn't a scalable proposition uh, because it took an incredibly sophisticated firm nine to twelve months to engineer a house, mm -hmm. and that's way too long. That's not scalable. Um, so we pivoted to facades uh, and uh, for commercial construction. And in, in that arena, uh, a facade is something it can be lightweight. Uh, it's structural from a lateral load standpoint, um, but it's technically non-load bearing mm -hmm. uh, on the building. And so it's something that that you can basically create beam tables um, and you know here's our spans that we can do for certain panel sizes uh, and then the the parametric design the 3d printing is applicable to the articulation available on a commercial building which architects have really been dying for design freedom yeah. for a long time and so this enables that type of design freedom yeah so that one that project was wholly uh, aluminum composite metal panels. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we came in, the construction contract was already awarded on that, and we worked with the design builder uh, and substituted our product for those flat aluminum composite metal panels. That would have been a pretty boring building. It would, yeah. And now it looks uh, much better. Yeah, totally one of a kind. Mm -hmm. They said that they have gotten lots and lots of people that come to them as clients uh, because of the unique building. So that's that's pretty good value proposition for owners. Yeah, for sure. So the structural system holding up the panels, was it the same as the aluminum or were there any adjustments? Um, we did have to, I think, reinforce a couple little areas, uh, but other than that, like it was, it was metal studs um, that was the skin of that building. And so our, our system attached to those metal studs. Cool. So there's another really interesting project you did uh, with a LiDAR scan of the moon? Yeah, now that one's different. Uh, so that's for the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, uh, kind of a really cool museum associated with NASA. Uh, and they were doing their new space camp building. Uh, that, uh, and they, we approached them. I can't remember how we got in touch with them. Uh, it was the architect, same architect that we worked with on the Huntsville parking deck. Mm -hmm. um, and so they had this project and they said, could we use your stuff on that? And so we developed a couple of different spacey kind of themes, uh, some that were based on like propulsion going into orbit, others re-entry, and then kind of a themed interpreted moon surface that looked like kind of Swiss cheese. Mm. Uh, well, they liked that one, but they wanted more realism. So they said, we have this LiDAR scan of the moon that had six billion points wow. to it. <laughs> so way, way more data uh, than was necessary. Uh, and so we took that and used that for the surface articulation. Did you tone down the number of points? Uh, yes, yes. And we took the articulation and made basically the topography of the moon uh, have about eight inches of depth. Um, and so we're able to take that surface model and adapt it to yeah. our facade. That's really cool that you can, uh, I mean, it's just like regular 3D printing, but the models you make, they're like all infill. There's no shell. Yeah, it's a solid model. Uh, what we end up using uh, is a watertight uh, geometry, uh, and oftentimes the geometries that we get are not that, mm -hmm. and so we have to fix it. Um, and so that kind of gets into some of the digital process. Uh, and where we get 
a file, and it really doesn't matter. We're kind of agnostic to CAD programs, uh, Revit, Rhino, Katia, SketchUp, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, we bring it in, and then it goes through our digital process. And mm -hmm. so we take that 3D model and then do a series of offsets for the different surface uh, the thicknesses and mm -hmm. processes uh, because that model is the source of truth for us. Uh, it informs 3D printing, it informs the, the milling, uh, uh, the, the foaming and the milling, uh, and then ultimately the final surface finish. Uh, and then how everything attaches back to the building. Yeah. Um, so that model is something that uh, on the, our internal processes, uh, we've started transitioning to CATIA, which is more made for manufacturing. Um, and so it can uh, parametrically adapt uh, to different geometries. You can change geometries, you can change details, and it will update all of the panels on a project nice. almost instantly. Um, and so that's a, something we're, we're wanting to be a manufacturer. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have to create automated processes and workflows in, in order to do that. But with a custom product, uh, it's it's a consistent process through a custom uh, custom product through a consistent mm -hmm. process, um, and so on the digital side, that's one of the things that we've implemented um, to help that front end workflow into the digital process of manufacturing. Yeah, that's pretty unique for manufacturing. Usually, they're producing the same thing over and over, yeah. uh, and we've seen a lot of three D printed concrete on this channel, but. It has no tensile strength or flexural strength, and so when you put it on a truck to ship, if they're in prefab, uh, it cracks. And so uh, this seems much more shippable. It's lightweight generally. Mm -hmm. The file you start with is it typically an STL or a step file? Oh no, we don't want an interpreted geometry. Mm -hmm. uh, we want the real model, uh, the vector geometry mm -hmm. uh, that is the real CAD file. Um, that's what we start with. And what do you export that to before you feed it through, I assume, your proprietary slicer? So we, we can either take it from Rhino, mm -hmm. or, like internally we use Rhino. Uh, uh, if it's a small project, we won't go through CATIA. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if it goes through CATIA, uh, it outputs and then it directly outputs to the software that takes the volumetric shape and then parses it to create uh, that internal structure, uh, mm -hmm. either uh, with a what we call voxelized grid, where it's all the same, uh, and it's like uh, if you remember the name of the game Cubert, where uh, or think Minecraft. Okay. Uh, uh, Minecraft on the inside of a panel, so everything is just cubes, um, yeah. and you subtract the ones that are um, intersect okay. the the face geometry. Uh, or you can do a structured grid. Uh, and structured grids are, they conform to the surface geometry. Uh, and so for almost all the projects that we do with matrix, uh, they're structured grids. Um, and so that is a process uh, that you create that internal geometry and then our software sequences. The whole thing creates the robotic code to tell the robots, here's how to print uh, this thing. Um, so that's all kind of on the software side. Was there ever a point that you decided to get rid of having an external printed shell um, or that was never even in the equation? The, ex the you're talking about the internal? Externally, printed? so usually a print is solid, uh, like a small plastic print oh. like with like a Prusa or Creality, uh, but you never had any kind of shell on the exterior even in the beginning? No, um, I mean, this was meant to be a structural thing. And, and use think, as little material as possible. Yeah, and so think of it as uh, configurable light gauge framing. Like wood studs, metal studs, uh, this is basically a configurable version mm -hmm. uh, of that. So there, there is the idea uh, initially where it was going to be, uh, you could 3D print decoration on there. Um, that's a whole lot harder mm -hmm. than it is to, <laughs> to um, we, we have developed a way to do layers um, and we can use those 
to attach parts together or to reinforce areas or to attach fasteners into what we print. Um, uh, but that's a slower process. Uh, it's not, um, it's using a whole lot more material and we're trying to be as material efficient uh, yeah. as we possibly can. You mentioned carbon fiber, uh, another type of material that's used in windshields. What are the different kind of materials you're experimenting with and some of the pros and cons of each? Yeah, so uh, the carbon fiber reinforced ABS is our fastest, cheapest, strongest mm -hmm. uh, uh, material that we print with. Uh, we've got um, PETG that we've printed with um, and a biopolymer uh, that's derived from sugarcane. Uh, the PETG and the biopolymer are both rated for interior exposure um, uh, from a fire stand standpoint. Um, and then ASA uh, is another polymer. Uh, what we're beginning to do, uh, and we've, we're kind of almost at the finish line of characterization, uh, is a new polymer uh, that's a Lexan. Uh, and it is about 250% stronger than the carbon fiber ABS. Those numbers that I mentioned are the carbon fiber ABS. Yeah. The Lexan is substantially stronger uh, than that. So, and we're still going through the full characterization uh, for the, all the numbers and results. It sounds crazy that the carbon fiber version is the most cost effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're using off-the-shelf polymers. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that uh, you're using like um, a, a very expensive proprietary blend. Uh, ABS is what's in Legos, mm -hmm. uh, even though those are fairly expensive. Um, the ABS is used in light covers, airsoft guns. Yeah, all kinds of things. Uh, I mean, my kayak is uh, made out of ABS, so very strong. Um, yeah. I guess the carbon fiber you just don't need so much of it and it makes it much stronger. Mm -hmm. It adds about 40% uh, of the strength with the addition of the carbon fiber versus the neat. Wow. So you're printing the lattice but the automation doesn't end there. You have some other applications for the kook arms? Sure, yeah. So we take um, and we the lattice, we fill it with that um, the fire-rated spray foam uh, and then mill that down robotically uh, and that's what gets you to the articulation of whatever surface uh, a client is wanting uh, and that milling process is a secondary process um, and so uh, that is what translates the digital geometry into um, the, the surface finish. Ultimately how far from the last layer of plastic does the foam go? Is it right there or is there an inch of leeway? We put about 20 millimeters. Mm -hmm. um, I mean you can see it right there. Uh, that, that's the back plane uh, and we similarly do that off the front plane. Um, and so it's um, and, and that's kind of what we've done. We can mill through anything pretty much uh, but we try to avoid the polymer. Uh, it just um, it's better not to mill through it. <laughs> and how was the permitting process, uh, especially for the early projects? Did they have to do trial by testing? Oh God, yeah, we've done trial by testing on everything. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've done structural, uh, we've done fire, we've done moisture, um, uh, expansion, contraction. Um, uh, we're doing now composite testing of everything. Uh, and. Uh, one of the things that is uh, kind of a new development that we're working on, uh, which is would enable us to go back to that, the housing stock and do that um, more scalably, mm -hmm. is we've been working uh, with SOM, uh, Skidmore Owens and Merrill, on a parametric structural finite element analysis solver. Um, and then the characterization of our multi-material composite. That's a very difficult thing to do mm -hmm. um, because you've got, if you take, you know, show, hand me that, the, the piece right there, composite. When you have um, 
Like you've got the matrix in here, you've got the, the spray foam, and then you have the GFRC. You've got interfacial bonding between each of those layers. Well, you can characterize a singular material. Mm -hmm. That's fairly simple. But when you start getting into multi-material composites, it becomes a very, very complex problem, like DARPA hard problem. Um, and it, it's something that you have to do immense amounts of testing to characterize it. Uh, and then you can infer, here's the structural, um, uh, structural performance of that composite based on all that testing. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've been testing for years now to understand like all of the different characteristics of that. And that then flows into like a finite element analysis structural engineering solver. In uh, software. In software. Uh, and so every building, this commercial building, goes through some sort of a structural engineering process. Typically, post and beam method construction, steel columns, steel beams, concrete, whatever, uh, those are very, very known mm -hmm. values. Like uh, that book, the green book back there is uh, Steel Bible. It has steel, known steel properties from 100 years. Um, and so what they went through to test all of those section properties over 100 years, we're beginning to do for a multi-material composite. Um, and so that's loading into, sorry, I'm geeking out about this. But <laughs> um, uh, this is loading into that software solution so that they can uh, analyze that geometry and say, yes, it works, no, it doesn't, no, it doesn't, here's the problem areas. You change the geometry a little bit here, and now it works. Yeah. Um, and so they're able to do that analysis in seconds now uh, versus months mm -hmm. of what it was on that first project. Um, so that was a huge development necessary in order to get to where we can begin to do the inherent customization that 3D printing brings to the table, but do it with the structural engineering necessary to make it code-compliant, safe, safe um, and vetted by normal structural engineers. Uh, so that's a big initiative uh, that is about 90% complete now. Nice. That'll be incredible. Uh, so in the time being, when you're doing something like the facade project for the bank, with so many unique printed pieces, there's no way you had to break each and every one of them, right? Oh, no. <laughs> so previously, the engineers only engineered around this, mm -hmm. a thin shell concrete yeah. structure, three quarters of an inch. Well, that's super weak. So when we've tested things, it's five times stronger as a composite as it is with just that thin shell concrete. So we had to re-engineer a project and I was like, oh my gosh, because the engineer only did it with the singular material mm -hmm. uh, and that's a very expensive prospect. So uh, it was a uh, good lesson learned, but it kind of pushed us towards this multi-material composite characterization project. Therefore, we don't have to go through that again. Yeah. <laughs> so, would it have been easier for you if they approached you before the architect designed that project? It would have been impossible. Wow. Like, there's no way, because uh, we hadn't done all the testing. Um, there's, there would be no way to characterize it. So, going into their project, after they already had the plans was a benefit? So they designed around our capabilities. Uh, the that, bank? Well, yes, that one, but then the, the one that I'm thinking about is mm -hmm. um, uh, was a parking deck, uh, and it was one that was done with much larger panels. The mega panels? Or? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah, kind of um, up to 20 feet, 8 feet by 20 feet wow. um, for that project. Um, and so that one was engineered around a thin shell concrete, uh, not taking into account the, the uh, everything that we're bringing to the table in the composite. Yeah. So. So they get more than they bargained for. Yes. Um, How did you transport those? Were they? That's too heavy to be moved by hand. Oh, definitely. Um, uh, I mean, that was we big flatbed trucks, and you crane them onto the building. With uh, a couple pallets and forklifts, or no? Those 
those from weighed anywhere from 2,000 to 5,000 pounds. Wow. Those were very, very large GFRC panels. Um, the, our typical rain screen panels are a couple hundred pounds mm -hmm. um, and can either be picked uh, or with the lightweight stuccos, you can just pick them up by hand. Yeah. Um, so how do you get them out of the facility? Oh, we got forklifts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you, you can lift a lot of things up with a forklift. Were there any uh, damage in transportation? Sure, yeah, yeah. And you gotta fix those. I guess the concrete's the most brittle part. Mm-hmm, yep. And so we had to repair those uh, that were damaged. Uh, and first of their type projects, you have to follow through all the way uh, and make it good in the end. Uh, and that was a first of their type project. Um, and so, um, Thankfully, uh, we've engineered now around a lot of that, uh, and so it, it's something that is definitely a more robust uh, product now. Yeah, the nature of your business is kind of begging for lots of uh, never-before-done projects. Uh, I mean, we've had, uh, we've got a pin, um, a guy, one of the um, people made this pin, uh, and it's first in the world. Nice. Like, because uh, a lot of the projects that we do are first in the world. Yeah, I guess that's the beauty of a, a dynamic 3D printing system where you can have so much customizability. Uh, at a certain point, you understand it so well that something brand new, never done before, is maybe perhaps well understood with the composite testing system. Well, if you're doing first of their type stuff, you almost always have to test yeah. and get it to... Um, you, you've got to do a lot to get that to code compliance. Um, uh, you, so that, I mean, we've spent years and millions of dollars on testing and certification to commercial code compliance. Is most of that with the local municipality? No, that's to international building code. So it's the commercial construction code, oftentimes in the U.S., is mm -hmm. uh, governed by the international building code. Um, and that's um, what most municipalities have adopted, uh, and so that's what we have tested to code compliance uh, on those those standards. Are you part of Joint Group 80? Joint Group? Uh, with Stefan Mansour and those guys. I guess it's more of a concrete thing, but uh, okay, so would those standards apply outside of Tennessee now? Oh, definitely. Like, um, that's across the U.S. Uh, and then international places that say, oh yes, we'll accept uh, the U.S. codes uh, and testing that you've done. Uh, we'll see how applicable that is. Most countries have u unique building codes. So going forward, you've now got all this work done, especially in the structural testing software, uh, all proprietary. Will you be is your business model to produce these systems or will you ever be selling printers? So our, our the business model is to produce product mm -hmm. um, and sell custom products. And so that's that's what we do as a business. Um, there's enabling technology, enabling software hardware that allows that, um, but that's not what we're selling. Um, we've had people that have asked, do you sell your printers? And the answer is no. Um, what we sell is the enabled product from uh, the process. So that's that's uh, a lot of the, a big differentiator on kind of our business model compared to a lot of other yeah. people in 3D printing land. Certainly you're selling the product rather than uh, a lot of people just sell the printers and they never operate them themselves and so the yeah. customers end up with all these struggles. Yeah. 3D printing is a great technology mm -hmm. but it is new and it takes an expert to operate them effectively. Uh, and so that is something that you can either train somebody to become that expert, which takes months to years, mm -hmm. uh, or you can become the expert yourself. Uh, and that's what we've chosen to do. So of the 50 people, how many can operate the printers? Uh, about half. Wow, that's um, a lot. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and uh, I will say I used to could operate. Uh, printers and a lot of people on 
technical team used to operate printers, uh, but I wouldn't want to touch it now. It just—it's gotten more and more sophisticated, wow. and the controls are just different. And so, like, I haven't operated uh, the robots in I don't know, probably four years. That's a sign of a good company, I think, when you can hire people that are better than you at certain oh, their jobs. Absolutely. Yeah, I, that's one of my goals: is to always hire people that are better and smarter uh, than uh, who we are right now. So. And humble too. The uh, 14 printers you have out there, is it one-to-one, -one, so one person operates one printer at a time? In the early days, yes, um, and through automation now, uh, we've gotten up to eight-to-one uh, eight operator-to-robot wow. ratio, um, and that's one of the goals is that you are operating in a manufacturing environment, and so you want those to be almost autonomous. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the goal. That's the power of robotics. Uh, and when you can refine a process, uh, it gets better and better over time. Uh, and that level of automation goes up. Yeah. So that one person watching eight printers, are they making sure there's no spaghetti? Is that the primary objective? They're looking at quality control. Mm -hmm. uh, they're making sure that prints get uh, submitted to the right robots. Um, uh, they're taking parts on and off platforms. Uh, so they're doing a number of different things. Um, quality control is probably the number one thing though. When you're doing concrete, there's a lot of human interaction, whether it's supports in the middle, but your system, if you complete one object, it's like a regular 3D printer where there should not be any human interaction during the print? Uh, sometimes there is mm -hmm. uh, for quality control uh, issues. Um, and so that's when they, uh, and we've got um, kind of automated pauses in there where they're testing strength mm -hmm. um, to make sure that it meets certain criteria for joint strengths. How do they test that? They've got a pull tester wow. uh, that is, you have to pull it until it reaches a certain level and then you know, okay, it's going to perform to that standard. Um, if it doesn't, are they able to like plastic weld it together or do they have to start over? If it doesn't, they have to restart that layer. Wow. Um, oh, they're just a layer. Yeah. So they have to take it off. Uh, and then restart that layer. Um, and is that just snapping the pieces off? It, it, sometimes it's harder than others. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, but it, it's pulling that layer apart. Uh, the sooner you do that, the better. Um, so, and then the other thing that they have to do is like sometimes we'll put uh, like an attachment mechanism into a print mid print, uh, so that you can have fasten certain fasteners into something. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they'll insert uh, some device into the print, mid-print, and it, the robot will stop and tell them, put X into this location. That's good. The robot tells you so you don't need some paper with the steps and know each layer? No. That would be very difficult um, with kind of how we're doing things. Mm -hmm. At scale. So the Testing happens how often? How many layers? Uh, that's Changes. a great question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, the uh, operations uh, folks would know that. Uh, Enough that one person can watch eight of them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and the, the, it's amazing to see what new polymers are doing uh, to that uh, and how it can become even stronger. Like, uh, it just blows my mind. Uh, how material science is such a big deal. Um, and I think in construction, we've talked about building science. Building science is typically how do you put a building together uh, and get it constructed. It's not the true science of like how all of these materials interact with one another and what are the innovations in the different materials that can be applied into construction. And so we're beginning to apply material science into like a new way of making uh, and uh, we feel like we're just at the beginning points um, yeah. because we're using as much as we can off the shelf materials um, and putting them to together in a new way uh, but once you can start to optimize materials for performance characteristics uh, it's truly amazing uh, what can be created uh, with that. 
Um, so, like, there's all kinds of areas of innovation there. Mm -hmm. so. What was the reaction from the other subcontractors on the bank job? Um, so, most of the subcontractors didn't really have much to do with our stuff. They weren't quivering in fear that their jobs would be automated away? No. Um, uh, <laughs> they, it was the, the rain screen installer that dealt with our stuff most, uh, and then the windows, like flashing around the windows. Um, uh, in like the typical uh, workflow on commercial construction, we're interacting with the people that make the envelope. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's typically where we're interacting. Long term, when you're applying innovation and um, 3D printing into construction, it has effects that are larger than what we're focused on right now. Um, where you're beginning to bring um, labor efficiency, you're multiplying labor, uh, you're creating um, solutions to the skills gap uh, that's occurring and the lack of people coming into the construction market. Uh, so that's where um, uh, everybody's afraid that robots are going to take my jobs away. Um, well, the jobs are like the people are leaving the jobs and nobody's coming in. Yeah. And so uh, there's a huge labor gap that's beginning to be exacerbated in construction. Um, and so this begins to help multiply that labor to begin to solve some of those issues. But I call this digital craft. It is not solely digital. There is a craft element because there's people involved at each step and those people are vital. Robots are stupid, really. Like they do what you tell them to do only. Like uh, in integrating intelligence into it is way down the line. Yeah. Um, but a robot is good at certain things and really bad at other things. Um, a human is amazing at certain things and really bad at repetitive, um, mundane yeah. tasks uh, or unsafe tasks. Uh, and so that, that's where the robotics married up to a human is a wonderful combination. Um, but try, we're trying to like, make that fit um, together. Yeah, it seems like young people want to have a standing desk with double monitors rather than swing a hammer, and so you're facilitating their ability to do that and it still be contributing to construction. Like, one of the things that's interesting is, like, our uh, workforce is typically, uh, I'd say about 30 um, would be the average age here. Uh, and so that's not typical on a construction site. Um, there's you've got a generation yeah. of people that'll be retiring out over the next 10, 15 years, uh, and there's not a lot of young people. Those guys call their grandkids to start their computer. <laughs> so uh, we've got people that are fresh out of high school, or a trade school, or college, coming in and doing different uh, activities here, and it's wonderful to see a new generation uh, of people coming into construction but not construction. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not thought of as construction. Um, but it, it's, it's a, I don't know, a new workforce coming into this industry. Yeah, there's so much knowledge in the folks that don't want to use the computers on the job sites too in terms of uh, being on site and just construction in general isn't always the same as it seems on a computer. Have there been scenarios where somebody not very tech-oriented has contributed to some kind of ideation or? Oh gosh, yes. Um, uh, so I've had to learn a lot about like manufacturing, mm -hmm. um, and because I came from architecture, which is not manufacturing-centric profession. Um, but one of the things that resonated the most with kind of our core values and how we operate is. And I've said it from the beginning, is this is an open ideas company. Anybody can come up with an idea, and the best ideas bubble to the top, and that's what we're going to use. And so we encourage everybody here to come up with ideas and uh, to say, I think we could do this better by X, Y, Z. Um, 
And I read this book uh, and understood that it's uh, a method, it's called the Toyota Method, mm -hmm. um, uh, Toyota Management System, um, Toyota Kata. Um, and it resonated uh, with me, not a manufacturing person, uh, because what it does is it enables anybody in the company to come up with an idea to solve these problems. Well, the people that are actually doing work are going to have the best ideas because yeah. they deal with these problems all day, every day. Um, thinking that I can come up with an idea that's going to be like top down and solve somebody's problem, it may work every now and then, but it's way better if it's bottom up. Uh, and so we read that book as a company, um, I don't know, a year or two ago, uh, and it was like an empowering thing for everybody here to understand I have a voice, what I'm doing, I can contribute to this, um, and my ideas will be heard, uh, and the idea that I have may improve our performance by 5%, 10%, 30% on whatever process. All those things aggregated together make a much more efficient process. I was going to ask how you facilitate uh, that culture within the company. I guess having everyone read the book is a great start. Uh, from there, in practice, is it open door policies? Is it group meetings? How does it... Uh... So we do um, a, a number of different things. Um, but like one kind of big picture thing that we do is we have quarterly planning. Uh, and during that quarterly planning, everybody in the company is involved. Uh, and we have uh, lessons learned, like what was good, what was bad, what was ugly. Um, and anybody contributes uh, to those lessons learned. And uh, then we base uh, our priorities and some of the things that we do within each quarter on those things. And then uh, uh, another thing is we have like a demo day mm -hmm. every Order. Like anybody can pitch an idea, say, um, I think we should be doing X, uh, and uh, they have to pitch it. Uh, and uh, I can't remember what percentage, but it was over 50% of those ideas have been implemented. Wow. Um, and it, it's amazing to see what people come up with. Uh, so I, I love that aspect uh, of the culture here. You mentioned uh, your wife earlier. Does she get involved in the company at all? No. Uh, she has been a huge support mm -hmm. um, and been something that I couldn't have done this without her. Yeah. Uh, but in the day-to-day -day operations, no. Um, and so I bounce ideas off of her. Yeah. Uh, uh, she's a very wise, kind person and has the support needed when you're going through like crap when it hits the fan, um, but uh, she is a designer more so than a, like a fashion designer, mm -hmm. more, so, more so than like manufacturing and that kind of thing, so um, anyways. Did your kids stop by and uh, check out the prints? Is oh yeah, um, my daughter worked here one summer oh, cool. um, and she was doing fabrication uh, and then another daughter helped. Uh, write grants, um, and uh, mm -hmm. my son comes here, like when I'm here on a Saturday, he'll be riding around with his little hoverboard thing. Okay. <laughs> uh, so. Do you take any of your work home with you in terms of like the physical printed objects? Um, take a lot of work home, yes. Um, like physical things, not printed so in your house? No. No. Um, I think that doesn't go with the aesthetic of our house. <laughs> uh, it's just, I don't know, different. Yeah. So, Would you ever live in a building that you printed? Oh, absolutely. I've, I think that house that we did is the sexiest house I've ever seen mm -hmm. in my life. And like later in life, when you don't have kids, uh, it's, I think, one of the most beautiful structures I've ever seen. Uh, Why would you wait till your kids move out? Is it a uh, smaller one-bedroom one house? <laughs> How many square feet? It was about, well, footprint-wise, it was 3,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a really big footprint. With major sloping arches. And yeah, uh, and lots of outdoor like space. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, I think enclosed it was about 1,200 square feet. Um, but one bedroom, one bath, like living area, kitchen area. Uh, so uh, voluminous um, spaces. So we fit our entire company in the bedroom. When we wow. took, we did a pre-assembly of it and about 45 people in the bedroom. So that's not a typical bedroom. Certainly luxury. Yeah. yeah. What does the company need the most right now to grow and scale? Um, so uh, a couple different things. Uh, one um, is we're a startup and constantly raising money. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one of the things that we're doing right now. Uh, we've got an open round uh, and uh, hopefully closing that in the next couple weeks. Cool. Um, so that that's uh, one of the things that I've had to learn how to do is pitch and raise money. Um, uh, two is we're looking for collaborations out there. And by that I mean like working on projects together, uh, doing commercial construction, uh, that's our focus. Uh, and so uh, designers, architects, constructors, uh, working with them to take those projects from like the idea phase into reality. Uh, and so always uh, looking for uh, projects where we would be applicable uh, on. And then third, uh, we have several open positions uh, right now and kind of key categories for us. Um, and so um, I know we're uh, director of R&D is one, uh, COO is one, uh, senior manufacturing engineer, um, uh, uh, head of sales. Um, and so, and I think there's a couple others uh, in different categories. Um, so almost constantly hiring. Is there an official title of the round you're on? Is it a seed round, A round, B round? So the last round was B round. Uh, this round. is kind of, um, uh, this won't be a C round. It's not a good time to raise a C round. Okay. Um, B and B.5. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Cool. I guess, uh, yeah, that's a reasonable step towards would you go public one day or is that in? That, I mean, there's several different ways that investors get monetized mm -hmm. out of something like this. Uh, public is uh, ideal, 1% of 1% of 1% of companies do that. Um, uh, there's other uh, scenarios uh, for monetization. I think you already got to the 1% of the 1%, so it's only a couple more 1% to go. <laughs> so, but, but you have to have scale and lots of uh, production. And we're not there yet. Like, uh, kind of our long-term goal is to have multiple facilities across the U.S. and around the world uh, that are producing products yeah. at scale. Uh, that's our long-term goal. Um, and it's something that the construction industry is so incredibly massive yeah. um, that like we've only just begun to touch that potential. So what does your ideal client look like? So we want to work with uh, building owner operators uh, that want a differentiated project mm -hmm. product in the market where they want clients to, like, well, for them, to, it draws business in, it sets them apart in the market, uh, it does something that's different than all the boring boxes yeah. uh, that are out there. And so that's the owner-operator. Um, and then second is like the architect, uh, because we enable the design freedom that oftentimes architects have been dying for, yeah. like and enabling that within more normal construction budgets. Um, so that and doing that on buildings that wouldn't typically get uh, a feature design on it because um, it's a normal construction budget. Uh, and so that's the that's kind of the second category of um, it would, who would be an ideal client. Yeah, it's cool to see things that wouldn't be really possible without the technology you've developed, like making a bunch of elements that are totally unique. You'd need to make unique formworks for each of those previously, uh, and then what do you do with them afterwards? You have to take it all apart. Uh, so I guess people with unique concepts, uh, maybe they've been told no in yeah. the past. Oh gosh, I can't tell you how many times I've got my hand slapped for coming out with, oh, this would be cool. No, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so this kind of enables that instead of it being no, you can say yes. 
uh, to that unique thing. And that's fun. That's a lot more fun. Uh, it's, it's amazing to see when someone begins to realize what the possibilities are and the wheels start turning, like their mind goes crazy. Like, and they started thinking uh, a million miles a minute. Have you worked with any universities to start teaching their students how to work with your technology? So I've given some talks at mm -hmm. different universities uh, over the years. Uh, we haven't um, done any kind of like partnership or class or anything like that. Um, uh, there's a lot of stuff, content online, yeah. uh, that either talks that I've given or on our YouTube channel uh, that has kind of design principles or um, the, the different methods that we go through and it kind of illustrates those. Uh, and we also have some design guides uh, that say here is all the different features that are possible within uh, our, the, the possibilities. Um, and so that's stuff that we uh, give out. And What's not possible? Not possible? Hmm. Um, that's a great question. Uh, Right now, at least. Right now, yeah. Uh, we're trying to stay focused on commercial facades. Mm -hmm. uh, we get tons of inquiries for houses, and we basically say no to that. Um, that's just a completely different market. Um, and uh, there's other people out there that can do houses. Uh, and uh, But uh, what's not possible? Everybody thinks you can do anything with 3D printing, mm -hmm. and that's not true. Like, you cannot... Um, just do anything. Uh, one day maybe you can like have the Star Trek replicator and it just pops out something. Yeah. Um, but we're just not there yet. Um, Some of the SLA stuff gets pretty close to that. The light stereo photography. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now the, uh, the thing, um, I don't know how much more time we have, but the thing that I think has the most potential with what we're doing is uh, the concept behind this is like observing all that stuff. The, that, that was stuff that I had in my office way before the idea for Branch. This, this, I called it some of my beautiful and amazing collection. Just things in nature that you see that are just truly, truly phenomenal on how they're formed at the micro scale, like a radiolarian, macro scale, um, uh, USGS satellite pictures that are probably maybe 40 miles wide. Um, and so seeing those patterns uh, and then distilling out like, okay, there's a structure underlying all of that uh, and it's cellular. And so the concept behind this is taking that type structure and translating that into how you can make building constructed things with a cellular mindset. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're working with a very, very simple cell that's just cubic right now. Uh, but if you understand 3D printing and material deposition in space, um, then you understand that you can do almost anything with that mindset. Um, and we're at the stage one, two, three of where this can go. But with a cellular mindset, you can make almost anything. Uh, and that was the purpose behind the name branch, is that we can branch into other things uh, over time. And that, because you can make almost anything with a cell, that's why. Yeah, biomimicry is so cool when you can uh, find inspiration from nature. seems like you've done a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, still, one of my favorite times of the week is when I just uh, take an hour and I will like surf on Pinterest and find all these just truly amazing things. Like whether those are pure math and fractals or like you get into like the natural structures or just the beauty that you see in nature. That's truly inspirational for me. So Cool. So if anybody wants to work here, they have a project, how do they contact you? So we've got, through our website, uh, we've got online forms, uh, and that's how kind of the initial um, inquiry starts. Uh, and then we've got salespeople that are regional um, uh, in different parts of the U.S., uh, and that they'll start 
getting in touch. Uh, and then uh, we've also got tools and literature on our website uh, in order to uh, say here's what is possible uh, with these initial products. And what kind of information should a potential client include in their initial inquiry to be uh, an attractive thing for you guys to respond to? So, like, mainly it's just do you have a project and is there a budget? Uh, do you have an idea of what you want that project to look like? Um, and whether that is something that the firm or the entity can 3D model the whole thing, that, that'd be great. Uh, if not, uh, we collaborate and we've got a, a design assist team that can create all kinds of content. Um, and so we'll create something together. So that's what we oftentimes do. Awesome. Well, thanks for letting me stop by. Yeah. It's a pleasure. Thank you,